We are continuing in our series, our Sunday series titled The Parables of Jesus. And so if you've been coming out on Sundays, um, you know that we've been uh, making our way through uh, these really important teachings of Jesus. And I really do want to encourage you to keep coming out throughout this series. We will really discover and be reminded of quite a bit of things regarding uh, the kingdom of heaven. How many of us, oh wait, before we jump in, I do want to say, just in case you don't know me, I am a pastor here at Crossway. Uh, You know, I had a lot of jokes today. Hey, welcome to Crossway, (laughs) right? Um, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, you know, I I know sometimes it is hard to think of it this way, but you know, I, I... Uh, I'm always trying to pray for Crossway Irvine, and I've known some of you guys for a long time. Like, I, you know, over what, I don't know, some of you guys, when you guys were in high school. So that's kind of a cool, um, really amazing thing for me to be pastoring a church like this, and uh, or one of the pastors here. So really do appreciate it. And yeah, so don't think of me as a guest speaker or something like that. Uh, Just, you know, yeah, one of the Crossway guys, right? All right, so how many of us are married, dating seriously, or not seriously, I don't know, whatever? Like two of you guys, that's good. This is um, a young adults church we've got going here at Crossway Irvine. You know, an interesting thing, and I hate these what if scenarios, but I'm gonna throw one out anyways. Uh, You know, if there was a great tragedy, there was a fire, and you've got like a really limited amount of time to, to gather something. And all right, so besides your kids, if you, had, if you have kids, all right, would you and your spouse, do you think you and your spouse would go for the same thing or things? Or would it be you guys are just on your own and dashing around the house and gathering different things? All right, it's an interesting question. I see some smiles. <laughs> I even see some shaking of the head. I know for my wife and I, there's a good chance, good chance we may go for different things. The things I value uh, somewhat are not always the things that she will value, and it's not always the things that my daughter will value, but I think that's something we've, we understand, is that we kind of all have our unique value systems, right? And it's not just things, but a lot of times it's even uh, events, activities. Uh, you know, I remember when I was in my 20s, one of the things I valued almost above everything else, you know, the opportunity to play basketball in a gym, right? Out, not being outside on, on asphalt or something. And, and I would do whatever it took to make it to that um, gym, right? And, and you know, it, it, that got me into trouble when I first uh, married Susan, right? Because I put that so high on the list that I would often sacrifice, you know, laundry time together. Because that, that was like really low on the list, I'll be honest. You know, I, I, it's kind of made its way up. But you know, this is, this is how we are, right? We have things we value. We have things that we consider important. And to, to really cut to the chase regarding these uh, two parables that we just read, It really is about what do we value? And Jesus is teaching quite simply that there is one thing we ought to value above everything else in our lives. And I don't think this is a parable telling us we're supposed to drop everything, sell everything, you know, leave everything behind, barefoot and sackcloth and stick, and go out into the wilderness and become the missionaries and preachers and teachers of Christ, although there is nothing wrong with living that life. He's telling us today, 
where we are right now, that there ought to be one thing we value and consider more important than anything else in our lives. And he tells us that this very thing is the kingdom of heaven. Now for us, that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, might not carry as much meaning or as much history or as much emotional kind of stuff as, as, as for the people of Israel when they first heard these terms, the kingdom of heaven, and when Jesus came and he started throwing around that phrase, it had a lot to do with their history. You know, I was, I was uh, you know, how many, everyone here know Michael Engelbrecht? So he is fourth generation Chicagoan. Is that, what do you, what do you, Chicago, Chicagoan, from Chicago, I don't know, fourth, four generations, all right? Anyone else here from Chicago? <laughs> we have a young adults group with nobody from Chicago. But, you know, this year, the Chicago Cubs finally broke through and they won the World Series. For many of us, it doesn't mean a lot. The Cubs winning the World Series. Some of us aren't even baseball fans, and we can't stand the thought of watching a, a, a grown man throw a baseball and another grown man trying to hit it with a stick. And the hours in between all of that, right? But I, I asked uh, Michael, hey, the Cubs winning the World Series, that's more than a baseball game to you, right? What does it mean to you? He said, oh, it's about family. His grandmother would watch games, memories that go back years and years and, and understanding all of that. And so watching a game as a Chicago guy was very different for him, right? And I, and I almost wanted to cry. I was like, oh man, I guess I should have rooted for the Cubs too. <laughs> you know, when, when someone here in this setting that we have and we, in this time and in this era, when they heard the kingdom of heaven, it had a lot of history, right? A lot of history. And I'm going to try to explain it real quick for us just so we could kind of tune in and identify with that history. You know, from the very beginning, God's people, right? So when God claimed a, a group of people and he said, you're going to be my people, the thing that was really special about that was that God was also claiming to be their king, that he would be their king. And so it was not uncommon for the people of God to understand this and to think about it, but they clamored for an earthly king, just like all of the other peoples. The other nations had a human being sitting upon a throne that they could come to and make their requests known to. And it wasn't just a king in the sky, a king in the heavens, it was a person. And so they clamored for one and God heard them and God even gave them human kings. Saul and David, and the lineage that came afterwards. But the problem was that the royal line of David soon proved themselves to be really unworthy of that high office. They had failed in so many ways to keep the most important things that God had asked them to and that God had desired for you. See, even though they were kings on a throne, they were still subject to the ultimate sovereignty and ultimate authority of the true king of his people. 
And when they had failed, what happened was that the throne of David became vacant and kings of other nations, kings of surrounding peoples and countries came, invaded Judea, invaded Samaria, and the people of God became slaves, taken away. And they cried out for salvation and for rescue. And to a people group uh, that felt abandoned by their king, to a people group that felt betrayed by their king, God sent word through his prophets, you know what? There is a kingdom that is coming. And this kingdom will be different because it's going to be an eternal kingdom. It will be an everlasting kingdom. And the prophets wrote about and talked about the kingdom that was to come and the kingdom of rescue and the kingdom of salvation, this messianic kingdom. They wrote about it in glowing terms. And so this people group, their imagination grew wild. And as years passed and as years went, they began to have all kinds of expectations, all kinds of hopes, and all kinds of ideas associated with this very term, the kingdom. And so when John the Baptist came and he famously showed up in the wilderness of Judea and he had a famous message, repent for the kingdom is at hand. It was exciting. The years and generations of waiting, of expectations, in a similar way to Michael of remembering that their ancestors, their grandparents had talked to them about the kingdom that was coming, the salvation, the rescue, the hope that was coming. You could trace it all the way back to when that people group was living in exile and the only hope they clung on to was the hope that there would be a kingdom to come. But by the time that Christ showed up on the scene, in this really small area, I guess, of the, of the world, the expectations had kind of become skewered from what God had intended. And so the people were expecting a physical kingdom, a kingdom that had actual boundaries, an actual realm, and maybe an actual government, an actual king, and, and, and maybe some were looking at Christ and seeing possibly, is he the one, is he the, the king of this kingdom that has now drawn near, that has come? Even Christ's disciples weren't immune to this thinking. It's evident from reading the, the, the gospels and reading through. At first, this was a huge hope that they had that Christ would be set up as the king, that he would deliver them, that he would save them, that he would rescue them, and it was such a deep and emotional hope. They even argued about who would have the position of authority in such a kingdom. But in Christ's teachings, and as he began to explain it and expound it, and we have the hindsight of time, and the, you know, we, we have the, the, the benefit of reading scripture today, we understand that it wasn't a physical kingdom that God was talking about. It wasn't a real country or a new government that he was talking about. But what Christ was describing was the reign of Jesus Christ, the true king in the hearts of his people. So it involved really simply, if I could simplify this, it involved two things. The kingdom of heaven involved two simple things. One is that Jesus is the king over everything. 
That's number one. Number two is that when you're a part of that kingdom, the king saves you from darkness, sin, and eternal death. And that's the great benefit of having such a king. And Jesus here in Matthew 13 says something really important, and it's such a great reminder for us living in Southern California today. He says, this kingdom of heaven is like treasure treasure hidden in a field. And you say, well, who hides things in a field? Well, that's how things were done back then. I mean, have you ever, I, to me, it was, I, I, I was thinking about this, and it's so interesting to me today that I, I never actually see any money anymore. There's numbers that show up in my account. Uh, don't worry, they're not that big. <laughs> but they show up. I, never, I, I, don't, I don't physically take some gold to the bank and say, I'd like to deposit the gold into my account. I don't even take, I don't even take uh, cash, right? I mean, some of us, it just gets deposited automatic, automatically from work, and, and, and then, you know, you can use that money with your phone, you can Venmo somebody, you can pay them that way, right? Isn't that so weird? Hey, I just Venmoed you $10. You passed on some of your money to someone else's account. And so we have this kind of system that allows us not to deal with these things, not to handle the actual gold or the money ourselves. It's all done by the banking system and the financial institutions. We don't protect our assets, we protect our passwords today, right? That's like what we have to protect. But back then, if you had treasure and you had something of value, what would you do to protect it? You would actually have to go hide it somewhere. And what's a great place to hide it? You go bury it in the field and hope you remember where you buried it, right? Because that is safe from even intruding armies, right? It's safe from the unscrupulous, from thieves, from people who would maybe even murder for your treasure, for invading armies. That's how you kept it safe. And so the concept of hiding something or burying something in the ground wasn't foreign to people. And Jesus' story is about such a, a situation. But the great joy, a, the, the great amazing like, wow, of discovering and finding treasure that is so great, what he does is he takes and sells everything he has in order to purchase that field so that hidden treasure would become his. Now, okay, look, this parable is not about like, like, wow, this guy was kind of shady, right? <laughs> Seems pretty deceitful what he did. It's not about that, all right? Jesus wasn't commenting on how we obtain salvation. He's not saying we can go purchase our salvation. He's not saying we can obtain the treasure uh, of the kingdom of heaven in such a way by buying or bartering. Of course he's not saying that. Most parables have one main point, and the main point is this, that the treasure is so great, so great, it's worth more than anything. And those who receive the kingdom value it to the point where it's above all other things. The second parable he tells about the pearl is, is actually a very similar parable. You have a merchant whose job and career is searching for pearls of value. And he finds one pearl that is above all other pearls that is of such great value, verse 46, that what does he do? He sells all that he has 
in order to obtain that one pearl of great value. I think today it is difficult for us to narrow things down to the point where we would say we have one thing of most and utmost importance and value and everything else in our life. Not a problem if we lose it in order to keep that one thing. We may say it, at times we may think it, but it is difficult to live it. It's difficult to teach our children that. It's difficult to express it to others. And so I do want to spend a few moments today just talking about the worthiness of our great treasure, the kingdom of heaven, and maybe to be encouraged in how we can put that first in our lives. One of the things that I hear quite often today is that because of how everything is moving in terms of technology and how everything, even TV today. Um, you know, how many of us remember TV was about a handful of channels? Those are the major networks, channel two, channel four, five, seven, nine, 11, 13. There was no reason you would turn to channel three. Snow. And as a child, there was no reason I would turn to channel 28. I had no interest in public TV. There was a few channels that were in foreign languages. I had no interest in that either. And so when a show became a hit show, usually the top show, for example, The Cosby Show, at its height, would have 50% of Americans watching that show because options were limited. That's how it was. Today is very different. Today, you can watch whatever you want, whenever you want. You have this thing called on demand. And not only is it on your cable box, it's on your phone, in your tablets. You could watch it wherever you are. And so there are shows, uh, uh, Pastor Larry Osborne spent a great deal of time talking about this uh, at a conference we were at as staff. Storage wars, many of us see it because it's so accessible. It's on over and over and over again. Fixer-upper, chopped. But there are very few shows that the entire country will watch together. And the, the illustration of this is that we are becoming increasingly, and the word I hear over and over again, is tribal. So we, we, we identify with our own personal interests, we identify with our taste, we identify with our clans, we identify with our neighborhoods or where we are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are so many different ways to identify ourselves, but we have sort of lost that sense of community, a community made up of tribes. And increasingly, I think, the tribes that we are a part of are becoming tribes of one. What I want, what I desire, what I like is of utmost importance over maybe what the community would benefit from. Now, I'm not here to make social commentary, but I am pointing to that to maybe illustrate how we have lost the sense 
this idea of importance and value that we are part of a kingdom. Do you understand? Because we see ourselves as tribes, as little circles. And we've kind of lost that ability to understand, know that there is this body of believers, that there is a king over this body of believers, and the value that is associated with being a part of that kingdom. And secondly, what's difficult for us today is, in in so many ways, we've also lost the, the, the sense of value of Jesus Christ of who he really is. Christianity today wants to, and I'm not saying this is how we always do it or how all of us do it, but in in so many ways, there's this desire to make Christ into this really tiny God. Because we make our desires and our wants greater than his. And so many times our Christian walk is very full of personal needs and personal prayers, and that's what we come to with Christ. Even as we gather on Sundays, we've lost in so many ways that ability to think what would be ultimately pleasing to Christ today. What would he enjoy today? Why did he set apart this one day out of the week for us to be gathered as a church? What is it that he wants and what is it that he desires? It's hard. I know it's hard for me. And if it's not hard for you, I would say congratulations. I think you're more mature and I wish I was where you are. If we were to really think about this, And I think the way that John MacArthur talks about it in his book, Sufficiency in Christ, is is maybe a, a good way for me, at least, to think about this. He talks about two brothers, and they're actually kind of infamous, Homer and Langley Collier. They were both sons of a well respected New York doctor, both had earned uh, college degrees, Uh, Homer received. Uh, and studied at Columbia University uh, to become an attorney. So, you know, we're talking about a sort of maybe, I don't know, whatever word you want to use, elite, privileged. When the doctor passed away, he left all that he had to his sons. They received his house. They received his entire estate. So the story becomes interesting, though, and I'm going to skip all the way to the end. On March 21st, 1947, police were summoned, uh, or police received an anonymous telephone tip that there was a dead man in their house. And upon arriving, they found Homer Collier's corpse on the bed, one of the brothers. This was 1947. He had died clutching the the, the February 22nd, 1920 issue of the Jewish Morning Journal, even though he had been blind, completely blind for many years. To their horror, they discovered that the two brothers were actually collectors and they collected everything, especially trash. The house was full of broken machinery, auto parts, boxes, appliances, folding chairs, musical instruments, rags, all kinds of odds and ends, and an especially 
unusual amount of old newspapers, all of it which was virtually worthless. This huge mountain of debris blocked the front door. They couldn't even get in. They had to make their way into the house through an upstairs window, and it took them three weeks to haul away all the refuge. They found more than 140 tons, tons of rubbish. I'm going to read a quote. MacArthur describes it this way. They had stockpiled their pathetic treasure. What was extremely sad was as they were clearing away the rubbish, one day they discovered another body. Langley was discovered six feet away, crushed in an apparent booby trap to protect their rubbish. I guess what's most interesting about the story of these two brothers is that they had received quite an inheritance. And if they wanted to, they could have lived a great life. There was no need for them to collect any of this. It was all completely unnecessary. And MacArthur says this, quote, too many Christians live their spiritual lives that way, disregarding the bountiful riches of an inheritance that cannot be defiled. They scour the wreckage of worldly wisdom, collecting litter, as if the riches of God's grace were not enough, as if everything pertaining to life and godliness were not sufficient. They try to supplement the resources that are theirs in Christ. They spend their lives pointlessly accumulating sensational experiences, novel teachings, clever gurus, or whatever else they can find to add to their hoard of spiritual experiences. Practically, all of it is utterly worthless. Yet some people pack themselves so full of these diversions that they can't find the door to the truth that would set them free. They forfeit treasure for trash. Treasure for trash. Why is it that we have this insane idea that we need something more than Christ, that we need something more than the gospel, that we need something more than the kingdom of heaven? And I kind of think of it this way. The kingdom of heaven involves two sort of temporal things. There's the, the, the present aspect of the kingdom of heaven, and there's the future aspect of the kingdom of heaven. The future aspect is kind of easy for us to understand. We understand and we trust that one day, yes, we will enjoy all of eternity in the kingdom of heaven, and we will see in all of its fullness the glory of the king. We will see the king on the throne, and we will worship the king on that throne, and it will be the greatest thing ever. But that's in the future, right? The present reality, though, is also very real. The present reality is that we have already been transferred from the kingdom of darkness. We have been rescued from that realm. That realm is no longer ours. We're no longer prisoners there. We're no longer captives there. We've been freed from any power that that kingdom of darkness might have had over us. That kingdom has no claim on our future. 
And so we've been transferred, and maybe the way we can see this, that there is an overlap between the present reality of the kingdom and the future reality of the kingdom, and this overlap is what maybe the New Testament writers refer to as the last hour, the age and time we live in today. And you know what's hard sometimes? is to think that even the present realities and the present blessings of the kingdom is greater than anything else. The future is kind of easy for us to see that. But the present is also greater, more valuable than anything else under the sun. Amen? And I guess the challenge for you and I is to teach our children this. If you're like me, I'm scared that I'm teaching my daughter that trash is more valuable than treasure. The time we spend, the energy we spend, the resources we spend, the things that I encourage her to concentrate on and to spend all of her energy and time on, those are all things under the sun. Maybe what we need to do is to focus on the inheritance, to focus on Christ, to see clearly so we can walk clearly. Amen? I think uh, there's a lot of simple things we can do. It's kind of like going back to the basics. You know, it's reading the word, it's praying, it's worshiping God, it's making the Sabbath a regular part of our lives, it's making our lives missional, the basics of the Christian walk. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you gave us a rich legacy to enjoy. And the reality is, though, that sometimes we don't regard it as something of great value. We know it is, but we struggle to live it out, and so we pray for your help. We pray for your Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us, to really enable us, Lord, to walk every day in the light of the great inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ, Lord. We thank you so much for that truth and for these parables, for your kingdom which you brought. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.